Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Today, I'd like to start out by reminding you that if you go to wealthformula.com, the home base for this podcast, you will find an abundance of resources that you are missing out on uh, if you have not already done so. You can get a copy of my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which is sort of my Wealth 1.0 book just for beginners, I would say, in the alternative investing uh, sphere. And also, it is a great place for you to go if you are an accredited investor, somebody who is worth a million dollars or more outside of your personal residence or makes $200,000 per year, $300,000 if filing jointly. If you meet those criteria, you're an accredited investor and you should consider joining Investor Club. Investor Club is where the magic happens. It is where people get an opportunity to put some of their lazy money to work, and it is part of the Wealth Formula experience. So check it out, Investor Club at WealthFormula.com. Also, uh, for those who are just interested in getting deeper and deeper involved with Wealth Formula and Wealth Formula community, certainly consider joining Wealth Formula Network. It is a course, first and foremost, with the likes of Tom Wheelwright and Ken McElroy and a bunch of really smart people teaching you the basics. And then you get to be part of Wealth Formula Network and our online community, which includes a Facebook group, a platform, and bi-weekly Zoom video calls so we get to see each other in the flesh and... Uh, and that's really, it's it's really turned out to be a really, really good uh, place for people who are interested in, in this stuff and want to reach out and have a community. Speaking of a community, the one last announcement I have before I get revving on this show is that the Wealth Formula Meetup is coming up, the next, uh, the second one. It's happening in Dallas, September 27th and 28th, and... Um, you know, it is nearly sold out already. We're capped at, you know, just over 100 people. Uh, so if you want to check that out and if you want to join up with us, uh, there's a ton of great speakers. Uh, the biggest thing is probably simply just getting to know each other more, which was a huge hit last uh, last spring when we were in um, Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, check that out at wealthformulaevents.com. It's a small event. Don't wait until next month to sign up because it will be sold out, guaranteed. WealthFormulaEvents.com. So let's get on with today's show. You know, I um, a few weeks ago, or maybe a month, time flies, um, 
I was a uh, I was speaking at a, a an investor conference. Uh, actually, it was very uh, nice of uh, Al Donald to invite me. Al's one of our uh, accredited investors in our investor group. He invited me out to New Jersey, um, where I uh, got to speak in front of his uh, investor conference, which was a nice uh, nice opportunity. Uh, to talk to people about, you know, my paradigms and my, you know, my way of thinking and uh, what I call Wealth 2.0, you know. So Wealth 2.0, some have heard me talk about this, perhaps you have, but it is, um, you know, the, what I talk about all the time, right? It, it the, the math of it is very simple. It's wealth uh, equals the leverage times mass, times velocity. These are the three variables that, to me, make up Wealth 2.0. And when you get into the nitty-gritty, let's start out by talking about mass. What is mass? Mass is the money that you actually deploy into investments. And why is that important? Because it doesn't matter if you're getting 100% return on investment if you aren't investing any money. So you got to invest, right? That's one of the lessons from my early you know, entrepreneurial career is not investing enough into, um, you know, assets. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs, they just keep pouring money into their own business instead of, you know, getting into some more real assets that are not part of their business. And I think that's a mistake. Um, so mass is simply the amount of money that's actually deployed into your investments. And, and you got to do that in order to take advantage of both velocity and leverage. Now, you may feel that you're limited in mass. I mean, after all, how much money do you make in a given year and how much of that can you actually put on the side to invest and not use up for stuff that you need like food and water and a place to stay? Well, the good news is that if you become more of a savvy investor, you'll start to realize there's some ways to navigate around that and create greater opportunities for mass, specifically uh, when it comes uh, to looking at the tax laws. For example, if you look at the tax implications of your investments, you can see that you can easily, easily, and very legally, I should point out, decrease your tax burden and free up more money to invest. Let me give you an example. I have invested myself, uh, you know, the majority of the money I've made this year uh, in various real estate projects that we've uh, presented in Investor Club. And based on those, I'm estimating right now that uh, in addition to creating the equity, creating whatever cash flow that comes out of it, I'm also estimating that of all the money that I invested, about 80% of it probably this year will become tax deductible because of bonus depreciation and cost segregation analysis. I've talked about this so many times. So um, hopefully I don't need, I won't go into, you know, a lot of detail on this, but if you need to understand this, you do need to understand this. This is something that is huge. Um, so this is particularly big for those of us who are considered real estate professionals, because we can utilize this bonus depreciation, um, on all of our acquisitions uh, that we do and, uh, and then apply it against any income that we have. So as a real estate professional, think about my benefit in knowing the tax law. So every time I invest, I not only benefit from the investment itself, like everybody does, right? Why do you invest? Because you're trying to 
you know, you're trying to create wealth. But for me, that's not just the delayed gratification of seeing that investment come to fruition. It is literally the tax implications of what that's doing for me this year, right? Think about if you could take 80% of all the money that you invest into something and write it off, think about how much more money, aka mass, that frees up for the next opportunity. Okay, so that's one variable, mass. Then there's velocity. Let's look at that variable in detail. So when we talk about uh, investments, people like to talk about the yield in terms of, say, cash on cash and, you know, uh, and, and of course, that's useful. You know, what is the cash on cash? It's about 8% or 10% cash on cash. But my preference is to ask a different question, not what is the return, not is the cash on cash. But what I want to know is a question, how long before I get my money back in my pocket? You see, for me, when I hear 10% cash on cash and that's all I hear, what that means to me is that the first 10 years of that investment, 10 times 10 to get 100%, I'm just getting my own money back, right? So why is that good just to get your own money back? You want to make money, right? You just don't want to get your own money back. So for me, I prefer investing in opportunities that get me all of my own invested capital outlay back within five years, within five years, and then still allow me to keep my ownership in the asset. Um, in that case, my cash on cash uh, return is not 10% or 15%. It's infinite, right? Think about it. If you still have your initial, if you have your invested capital back in your pocket and still have equity in the deal, it's like recycling capital and using the same money in multiple be multiple deals. I mean, I love double dipping. Right? I love using the same money over and over and over again. It's a hell of a lot easier than making more and more and more money, which is also something it's good to do. Um, and that certainly, when you can recycle that money, it certainly speeds up the wealth building process. Um, and that's another reason why I call this variable velocity. Now, uh, if you want to understand how you can use that again, I mean, just look at some of the majority of our uh, opportunities within Investor Club are just like this. So check it out. Now, the last variable in our equation may also be the one that's most misunderstood or taken too lightly, and that is leverage. So leverage is critical to building wealth. In fact, infinite returns, as I just described them above, are virtually impossible to attain without the skilled use of leverage. It's really smart use of leverage that makes that even possible in the first place. So most people uh, with a real estate background, with some, uh, you know, um, real estate experience instinctually understand that leverage is important to make you know money in real estate. But when you do the math, when you do the math, it's not just important. I mean, this the numbers can be staggering, staggering when you put in the uh, the element of leverage, and that's ultimately why so many real estate investors have become so wealthy over time. However. The thing that I'm talking about when I say people sort of underestimate the value of leverage, it's not just about borrowing money from the bank. That's not the only thing that leverage is. I mean, the word leverage, all it is is it implies the use of a tool that amplifies one's efforts, right? That's what leverage really means. I mean, people helping you can be leverage. Um, now, certainly bank money fits that description, 
because it makes your investment you know, more potent. But there are other creative uses of leverage that often go underutilized. And for example, what if there was a way to leverage your charitable giving? In other words, what if you could support your cause, what you want to give away money to, and donate a certain amount of money that had the simultaneous benefit of amplifying the paper donation on your tax returns. In other words, say, what if you could give away $10,000 and on paper for your returns, it ended up being a $50,000 giveaway? It can happen. It happens all the time. We just don't really think about it, believe it or not. Um, There are ways to do this, and we just have to be educated in them. And that's the sphere of the affluent that we have to start to penetrate. So my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast is in the business of something called land conservation. Uh, It's something that, in my opinion, is very important uh, as a cause, uh, because certainly I think that anybody with children wants their children to have a nice place uh, that we call Earth, uh, that has some places that they can run around and isn't all developed. But it's also something that has a significant potential financial benefit that you are going to want to hear about, I guarantee. That is what we're going to do right after these messages from my guest, Jim Sullivan. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest in the Wealth Formula podcast is Jim Sullivan. Jim is the founder and president of Terra Optima, which is a consulting firm that serves landowners, family offices, and high net worth individuals in making a positive contribution to the sustainability of our world. His firm, uh, as he likes to say, intersects with the broader financial services and impact investing community to advance the cause of sustainable and tax-efficient real estate activity. Jim, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you today, Buck. So it's been a while since we had you on, uh, and we have so many more listeners now than we did 
Um, so let's kind of start at the beginning if you would. Now you're you're involved uh, with Terra Optima is a ultimately is a real estate development company that also does something um, in the land conservation space, which you've done a lot with. Tell me why land conservation. Um, why have you dedicated your career to this? Well, it really is driven by the reality that we're not anti-development. We just think that it needs to be done sustainably. And, uh, you know, I grew up in New York and I've watched, for example, I grew up on Long Island where, you know, the, the, the explosion of growth in just one generation irrevocably altered a landscape. And, uh, and we just watched farm after farm after farm get developed. And then ultimately, when you get to Long Island's East End, for example, that's where conservation still exists. And uh, properties are voluntarily conserved or conserved by state or you know, local agencies. But, you know, the toothpaste is already out of the tube. Uh, and so you really can't kind of, you can't get any oceanfront real estate that's not already developed, you know, for the public good. You can't, you can't get it available. So I, I really, what's driven me in this space is the fact that Conservation takes vision. We have to preserve some open spaces for generations to come. And so uh, it's with that vision that we want to be able to ha have those open spaces where people can have some elbow room to move in the midst of the developmental sprawl that's happened in America. Um, you know, there's got to be clean water. There's got to be clean air. There's got to be places to go. And, and uh, we just, uh, as, as, uh, as the song John Mayer song said, we can't pay in paradise and put up a parking lot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, I think, uh, um, what we try to, what it, what it seems to me is that what we're trying to do is trying to find situations in which it is also becomes a, a financially useful thing to do, which ultimately economics is what drives everything. So you're involved in, um, you know, what we call conservation easements. Tell us exactly what it, a conservation easement is like tell us the sort of the definition where you know what's the historical background of these things and you know sure yeah yeah so you know with with today's development pace of six thousand acres being developed every day a conservation easement is a private deed restriction that can be used to permanently prohibit any development on a piece of property whether that's on the surface or even subsurface and so it it permanently prohibits that and is treated by the Internal Revenue Code with the ability for one to take a charitable deduction based on that. Uh, you just have to follow the, the IRS guidance and the guidance of the tax courts uh, that have been provided over the years. It's been in the tax code for 43 years. And uh, essentially, you know, there's, a, uh, there, there's a, an appraisal process that has to be done on the property to determine what that uh, deduction would be to the landowner. Well, let's and let's so back up just a little bit. When we talk about conservation easements, and if if so, these are typically, you know, um, historically landowners, um, farmers, maybe uh, mm -hmm. that have a big piece of land. Is that is that a is that a accurate historically? That's correct. Farmers or just uh, you know undeveloped open space. Right. You know, pe people will own acreage and, um, and uh, you know, it, uh, the properties, these properties can be owned for a long, long time or short. They could be farming. They could be hunting, fishing properties, uh, you know, with the boom that we've seen in different places in the southeast, for example. A lot of these properties, uh, you know, were not even considered for development just even 10, 15 years ago. But now they're on the cusp of development. 
Right. So, so when you're giving or you're not giving uh, the land away, what you're doing is you're giving building rights away. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Building right. So, or other, yeah, or other economic rights. Like, you know, some of the properties we'll work on, it, the, the habitat's being preserved, but that's because what we're doing is we're, we're reserving the subsurface rights uh, for mining where there's been a clear mining opportunity that's been demonstrated there. But in order to go after the minerals, it's going to devastate a habitat. So, uh, you know, that could be, that could be just as much a, a cause to conserve that piece of property because if it's no longer habitat, it just becomes a pit. Right. And so, so what you're doing is effectively saying, okay, I'm not going to build on this. I'm not going to, you know, drill on this. And, um, uh, the IRS recognizes that again, it's something that the government theoretically wants you to do because it's right. actually helping with conservation. Um, That's right. so who, you know, so who invests in conservation? So you, you know, you hear about, conservation easements. And when I read about them initially, I heard about, you know, the big landowners that we know use this kind of uh, strategy, or I don't know if you want to go to strategy, but this kind of charitable giving slash, you know, personal finance strategy, you, you know, guys like Ted Turner, or even the Trumps, um, you know, who, so how does this work in terms of those owners? Like, who are the people who have traditionally done this in the past? Yeah, traditionally it has been uh, a tax strategy of the affluent and the, even the uber affluent. So you mentioned a few, but it's funny you mentioned Ted Turner, but he, he and John Malone, for example, the founder of Comcast were in a race to see who could have the most acreage in, in conservation easement. Uh, and they would actually, as, as it's been relayed to me, they would actually fly over each other's properies in helicopters. And then uh, ultimately Ted Turner stopped trying to compete with them. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're for a West Coast listener um, uh, who tunes into your podcast, the billionaire Donald Bren uh, with the Irvine Ranch, another good example, uh, you know, took a huge deduction for the conservation of that ranch. Um, so yeah, it's been a tax strategy of of affluent individuals and even corporations. I believe it was a couple of years ago up in New England. Uh, it was thirty four thousand acres apple conserved. And it made for great PR and it was really great for the environment, but it was certainly great for their books and in the sense of the big tax break that they got. So let's talk about some of those. Now, conservation easements, of course, are known um, to have potentially some substantial tax benefits. So let's dive into that a little bit deeper. How does that work exactly? Because you mentioned, okay, so now you have a piece of land, uh, or as we'll talk about in a moment, you could potentially invest in something that um, invest in a piece of land. Maybe if you're not a billionaire, you can still participate, right. but how, how does the, um, foregoing of these rights, how does that equate into potential tax benefit? Well, it equates into potential tax benefit because the property meets, meets very high IRS tests. Um, and, and so, and those clearly have to be demonstrated, uh, you know, the, the property has to have some scenic beauty or some, some uh, historical value or some y uniqueness to it. And it's, ha and if it is biological, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's biological uh, nature that make it a desirable asset for conservation. And it also has to, the, the deduction of it has to be uh, uh, based on the fact that the property is debt free, for example, you can't give away something that you own debt on, you can't give an easement up on it. Uh, there is also a valuation process 
And that's part of how that, that valuation of the value of that deduction is derived, which is where you're going, is that the property is not, um, it's not like you deduct a building that you, could, that you never build. It's the, 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 pro the value of the land as it's worth fully entitled for full development and, and th that, that is at its highest and best use. So what that means in real estate law for your listeners is that which is uh, maximally productive, financially feasible, uh, and, and, and physically possible, um, as well as maximally productive. Um, and so, and legally permissible uh, is key. So the, the, these are all, all the, the factors that are considered when a property is valued for its highest and best use. And then that property is then in a second valuation valued at what it's worth when those uh, economic rights have been permanently foregone in the placing of a conservation easement. And the difference between the two becomes a deduction to the donor. Now, to your point about uh, a bit of a misnomer that people say when they talk about investing in a conservation easement is um, a conservation easement is actually something that an individual and organization can buy. Uh, and but it can also be donated. And we're talking about donations of conservation easements for a charitable deduction. You don't invest in a conservation easement in that sense. It's a bit of a misunderstanding. What, what an investor does is that they invest into a piece of property that clearly has economic opportunity related to it. And then through the election and through the voting of put, uh, to put that property under conservation easement, that's where those investors who hold an interest in that property realize tax benefit the the value the valuation process itself uh seems pretty uh complicated who are the who are the people um you know if done properly who who is the entity the people whoever that give this valuation because essentially what we're talking about um i think you put it best one time you called it leveraged giving right mm -hmm. um and that's basically what it is it's like you know, we, have, we use leverage all the time. And um, as real estate investors, we know the benefit of leverage. But in this situation, what you're doing effectively is you are investing in or you are buying or donating. Buying and donating is probably the best way to say it. Um, but you're buying something and you're giving it away or you're donating it to this charitable cause. But it has, because of that valuation, there's a leverage so that your write-off could technically be significantly more than the actual uh, gift, the economic gift that you initially gave. Right. So that difference, as you called it, was through this valuation. Who does that valuation when done appropriately? The valuation is done compliant with the code by a qualified appraiser. And so that's somebody who's got a real specialty in this area. This type of valuation is not done by your typical appraiser. Most people are in the, uh, uh, accustomed to relating to somebody who kind of whistles their way through a commercial or residential valuation for, for a, or to buy a home or to get approved for a mortgage. In contrast to that, it's a very, very sophisticated appraisal process. These appraisals classically could be as much as two to 300 pages thick. Yeah. Um, and so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a specialty um, in, in that respect. And actually that appraiser has to disclose their own qualifications in the appraisal itself. Uh, it, it's, it's one of the things that they put forward as an attestation to provide a qualified appraisal is that they have to be a, a qualified appraiser and meet the IRS tests 
which you know are, are found in, in in section 178 as well as the related guidance so this is uh this is something i think sort of fits into this whole concept that or not concept but that this reality that for the most part even though that this is law the irs doesn't really like these things very much right, right. um in fact if you do a simple Google search on conservation easements, you see all kinds of stuff about, you know, conservation easements being sort of this, you know, loophole for the wealthy and how, you know, people are abusing the system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, talk about that a little bit, if you would, because, you know, you sure. invariably run into people who say, hey, Jim, I read this article and... This article, by the way, who this same guy seems to be writing the same article every year. Um, yeah. Tell, what's your response to that? Yeah, this isn't a, a loophole. It's a straight congressional incentive. Much like you, our, our fellow friend and colleague, Tom Wheelwright, would say, when it's about tax, it's all about the facts. Right. When you do things that, that comply with where Congress wants you to uh, conduct your investment activity, that comes with certain tax benefits. And that's their only way to incentivize which way markets go. So this is a provision, not a loophole, that's been in the tax code uh, since 1976, really permanent fixture in 1980, to incentivize uh, private land conservation. Um, but if one were to simply rely on a one-page Google search nowadays, you're going to see a lot of buzz about concerns about abuses in this space. And the, the, to the unwitting reader, they may look at that and say, oh, my gosh, this is something that's, uh, you know, you put the skull and crossbones over it. But when you understand somebody with the institutional legislative memory understands that anything with any duration in the tax code has gone through occasional ways of being abused. Actually, that's the big macro view, the way that uh, legislators look at it. So, you know, for example, a guy like Chuck Grassley, who, who sits, you know, on Senate Finance, he sat on Senate Finance 14 years ago in 2005 when they did their last review of the conservation easement charitable deduction. And uh, because of, at that point in time, concerns about abuses that existed. And so here in, in, in that brief span of a 14 year period of time where this one senator was on Senate Finance, this has gone through two cycles of congressional review. And so um, the, the, a lot of the chatter and the things that one will see on the uh you know uh, you know when they just see write-ups you can't make your investment decisions based on a google search um because there's too many agendas there's too much politicizing of things and issues you must make yourself a student of of much deeper resources than that whatever uh it can be discovered by those means because there's a lot of misinformation a lot of misinformation um you know i could certainly illustrate some of what that would be uh, but you just really have to be a discerning and a careful listener. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, 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 here's a good example of a, an Internal Revenue Code that most people are very familiar with. It's Section 401k of the Internal Revenue uh -huh. Code, right? right? Most people who, who invest and put money in their 401k don't give any thought to how many 401ks suffer miserably when audited by the, uh, by the Department of Labor and, and the SEC. And, and, and are assessed penalties, which even comes right out of the principle of people who have money in that plan. Uh, now, if there was concern about mismanagement or abuse in 401ks, then people wouldn't abuse them any longer. Um, so I know that 
reduces it down to the simple, but it does put it into the realm of something that most people understand. We're talking about 170H and not an area where most people have any tax exposure. And so they have to come to understand that um, abuse, anytime there's been anything in the tax code for any duration of time, it's had its period where it's had to undergo some review and consideration for tax reform. Along that lines of you talk about, you know, there is certainly, uh, you know, I've talked about this. There certainly is abuse out there and part of the right. part of the problem uh, that the industry in general suffers from is that a few bad actors, you know, can spoil the whole thing. And um, the big thing to me appears to be, correct me if I'm wrong, um, an attack on sort of egregious valuations. So that's why I was, you know, hitting that valuation question so hard. Sure. And the, and the, and the leverage issue you pointed to as well, which right. we can speak to, but go ahead, yeah. complete no, your thought. No, but that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at is how do you control that? Or how do you know if you're doing something that is not abusive? Like what, what are the metrics that you use and any other commentary around that? Because obviously there is this, element that is uh, creating a problem? Well, the, a lot of the concern that you see that people demonstrate to the you question about leverage, uh, uh, which I'll touch on first before I get into the, this question is, is that, because uh, they kind of lead one into the next, is that uh, when you're taking a deduction larger than what your basis is in a property or in any particular asset for that matter, uh, that's something that most individuals are unfamiliar with. However, it's not an unfamiliar thing for um, a tax strategy of the affluent for affluent individuals to give away appreciated assets for a deduction. And so, and then the tax code, a charitable deduction is not limited to your basis and what you have, you put into it. For those who are tax aware or tax savvy, you might want to look into section 704D3B, but it, it'll, it will explain to you how, you know, a, how a partnership in partnership taxation, for example, that's, it's just not limited to basis. Now, um, in, individuals in America, uh, for example, if you have somebody who, who makes $100 million a year, and let's say they're a moral person who has a religious upbringing who wants to give away 10% of their income, they're going to give away $10 million. Okay. Now, are they going to give $10 million cash, or are they going to give away $10 million of appreciated stock? In the end of the day, on their Schedule A, their charitable giving still says that they gave away $10 million. But they may, they may have given away $10 million of stock that they procured a few years ago for a million dollars. It doesn't mean that they didn't give away $10 million. Right. And so it just has to do with market valuation and determining you know, the, uh, how something's valued. So it kind of illustrates the leverage component in a, in, in a different context. You know, as it, as, but, but to your question, um, you, your question is more about um, well, what you, with that in mind, well, really, I think, you know, the question advice. becomes in the question becomes then at what, you know, because obviously there is a, um, you know, there, there is a, an effort to at least, you know, even the IRS or, you know, even in individuals who are doing conservation easements within the industry of trying to, trying to remove people who are abusing the system. Right. What it, you know, what metrics do you use? And who's to say what abuse is? Yeah, so for a conservation easement, we, we've counted there's about 30 different, 30 different technical tests 
that can be an area of potential abuse for a conservation easement. Um, and you really have to work with a firm that's got a demonstrated track record and a, and a prowess and acumen in this area. Um, when it comes to valuation, which is of chief concern to people, uh, nowadays with a deduction of any size, just a matter of best practices of ours is that we go ahead and always make sure that we've got a couple of different appraisers who weigh in on that because we are not appraisers. So uh, we will vet appraisers, we interview them, we will interview 10 appraisers before we hire them for an assignment. Um, and then we'll have an appraiser check the appraiser's work and so on. And we, and we pour over these documents uh, because that's why that, that's how we're able to actually have a good track record. Um, so, but, the, but, but that's, that's what a lot, of, a lot of the conundrum nowadays with conservation easements is a lot of concern about valuation. It's actually the least most documented reason why conservation, deduction, conservation easement deductions are actually disallowed. It's actually for a host of other reasons. But at the end, but the motivation certainly from the IRS and uh, dislike of these things has got to do with the valuation. That may be the motivation, but it does not end up being the criteria through which they actually disallow deductions. Okay, they would much easier, they would be much happier to find easy to capture low hanging fruit um, when they're auditing something. Let's say easy to capture is this that, you know, they're able to say, oh, well, we can see clearly in this document and in the exchange and in the, in the in the documents we've been able to review that um, you, Mr. Donor, had a quid pro quo going here where, yes, you did voluntarily uh, give up the development rights for this piece of property, but we can see on the other side of town that you got entitlements on the other side of town to build over there because you gave up the rights on this side of town. And so you can't give to get. And so uh, there was no charitable intent in auction deduction denied. And that's not an isolated incident. There's things like that that have individuals have attempted to do. Um, another example of a, of a conservation easement failure and post-mortem would be an example where uh, somebody, uh, a CPA thought that they would go ahead and open their own land trust, for example. And then he, uh, uh, he, he, he essentially created his own 501c3, which was the donee and the recipient of the, the, the granting of the conservation easement. And so in tax court, he was brought on the stand and was basically asked, what authority, what experience, what expertise do you have to be leading a, cons a conservation lands trust that would qualify to be a qualified donee, a qualified recipient of this type of gift? And what expertise, what type of monitoring activity did you actually deploy in this circumstance? And he actually, you know, under oath had to consent that his satisfaction of the annual monitoring of those properties uh, basically boiled down to him passing by them on his bike ride once a year. Let's talk about... <clears throat> so that's just an example of abuse. Um, yeah. The abuse is real but rare. And we, we don't want to scare people because in reality, the, the, vast, the vast majority of conservation easements are good and not replete with abuse. But you just have to watch out for, for those types of abuses. And any so, of your any of your listeners who want an IRS checklist, I'll be happy to send it to them. Yeah, and and um, yeah, that that's uh, we can get some contact information at the end. But let's talk a little bit about again. So people want to know, sort of like, okay, so how does this turn out? And if there is an audit, what does that mean, et cetera? Um, 
so let's let's just take it. So I'm so let's say I'm an investor and I have invested in conservation easements um, on multiple occasions. Um, and what I have found um, was as a limited partner, say I invested you know fifty thousand dollars or something like that, and I got a right. two hundred fifty thousand dollar K one loss. And all of this sudden, so my K one is basically going into with all my other K ones, all my real estate K ones. Now, um, I have been audited and it's not been, uh, I was ultimately told it wasn't because of one of these, uh, things, but it, um, a lot of people get audited when you make any sort of money. So, um, in my case, what was interesting was that the auditor looked at it, you know, not like you liked it, but there wasn't really anything you could do. I mean, there was a, you know, I'm, I'm a limited partner and you know, here's a K one. I've done my thing. So where's the problem? The problem then, if so as an individual, there isn't much to, you know, fret. Is that fair? I mean, it's really more like, okay, if, if this thing's going to get challenged, it's going to be challenged at the general partner level. And if it gets challenged, the implications of that are theoretically what? So 30% of our projects we have done for directly for families of wealth. And when that deduction goes on their form 1040, they've got to respond to that audit in- inquiry. But the other 70% of our projects have been these types of partnership structures like, like what you've invested in. And in those types of circumstances, uh, they, that's exactly right. The audit has to be dealt with on the partnership level. And then if there's any adjustment to it, then it administratively trickles down to people getting a readjusted K1 just to, so that we're speaking apples to apples and so that your listeners don't confuse anything. You, you, you were speaking very quickly and you mentioned like a K-1 loss. It's important that your listeners understand that it's actually not a loss. It's a charitable deduction uh, because it would be treated differently right. if it was a loss. But that's okay. It's, you know, words matter. And so I just wanted to just. No, that's a good listening. point. Good point. Yeah, no, it's all good. So, but, uh, but that's correct is that when one looks at it, that's why it's important to know that, um, you know, you're working in, 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 in concert with a good developer and a good individual, a good organization that actually can put together a project appropriately. And that there's a good audit reserve there, for example, where that's pre-funded. That you know that as you're investing into a real estate enterprise that might contemplate a conservation, uh, an implement, implementation of conservation planning in part or in total. Um, the, the the reality is, is that those monies are there to go ahead and defend that deduction should it undergo scrutiny. But but the guy who's filing a Form 1040 with that deduction, like you, uh, you're not going to be the one who defends that deduction, and it's not going to be a part of your um, inquiry with the service because you're, you're you know, they're unable to actually administer. It, it violates the way the the procedures of the way the IRS deals with partnership taxation. Um. You had mentioned, uh, we've talked a little bit about some, <clears throat> you know, it's another round in Congress uh, that's kind of, at least when we talked last, was sort of, um, you know, it was it was on the table, right, on the congressional table for some potential right. changes. And I know uh, one of the things that's been useful in talking to you is you're, you know, you've been part of those talks and you've been talk to, talking to politicians, you've been talking to people on Capitol Hill can you talk about some of the things that, you know, some of those conversations and what the effect might be uh, on the future of conservation easements? Yeah, there's a number of things being contemplated. 
And much like, uh, you know, 14 years ago, there were different proposals floating around in order to uh, knock abuses out of the, out of, out of, out of the space. Um, at that point in time in 2005, for example, there was concern about overvaluation. So when they saw the abuses were real but rare, they, um, they, they imposed certain types of overvaluation penalties for, for uh, appraisers. I mean, a lot of people don't realize an appraiser is not that your typical appraiser with his head screwed on, who's capable in this space, he's got a tax ID number like your tax preparer does, where all of his work in the space could be pulled with one mouse click by the service. So, uh, he, the, and he also knows that if he provides a misstatement or overvaluation, he can get a ding on his license, a penalty it could be enormous. That's all the result of the reform that happened in 2005. You know, now some of the things that are floating around are um, that we're seeing just in our discussions with legislators um, is, is some things that will strengthen the conservation purposes. For example, uh, uh, some things that will tighten up on appraisers' education qualifications by statute, uh, because that's actually not laid out. A qualified appraiser is, there's a clear test there, but to add to that and to strengthen it, where they must satisfy certain government-endorsed uh, coursework and substantiate that as a part of their certification and substantiation as a qualified appraiser to take, say, a certain type of course is, is an important, um, uh, you know, uh, suggestion. Also, multiple appraisers for gifts above a certain size, for example. This is also some of the things that are being floated around. And then one of the things that um, uh, is, is give, being given serious contemplation is whether there should be a longer holding period for the donor of a conservation easement. Uh, right now, as the law stands, if, if mom and pop give up, their, give up the development rights on their farm, um, they could only do so and get a deduction for it if they've held that property for more than a year. That's the way the rules stand now. Um, there is actually uh, a provision in real estate and partnership law where uh, if, if people are in, in, in that investment structure with mom and pop, and mom and pop allow people to invest into their holding company, and then together they donate the conservation easement onto, uh, into a land trust rather than developing and putting up a subdivision for that matter, um, they enjoy the holding period that mom and pop have. Uh, so if they've owned it for 45 years, that's how long the property is recognized as having been held. Now, uh, some people have exploited that um, and they've abused it uh, where they, they buy properties, they hold them for a year, and then they, uh, they bring in some cowboy appraiser who will provide a, a big number and then they do a real estate syndication. And then uh, everyone kind of puts money in and money out and it gets quick deduction and it's an abuse of the system. So in order to create a more fair tax system, the suggestion has been made to require partners to be uh, subject to that same one year holding period test. Now, there's other things that have tried to have been suggested that create a longer holding period for partners than what original land, you know, single landowners would have to comply with. Um, but, uh, the legislators we're speaking with want a fair tax system. Everyone in America wants a fair tax system and not have a, one, a set of rules for one type of donor versus another. So th th I think that one of the key things that I'm just driving home here is I think we're going to see a change in the holding period requirement. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
as, as a way to kind of beat out, beat out of the space individuals who would be exploiting that one little loophole of partnership law. It's not, a, it's not isolated to conservation partnerships. The same type of provisions exist in tenants in common structures or 1031 exchanges and things. As I'm told, I am not a tax lawyer. I'm not a CPA, but uh, I've dwelt in these financial circles for some time. And so these, the, it's not something peculiar to conservation partnerships. So just for just for clarity, um, because I know we just uh, said a lot of things. One of the things I think that you have mentioned, that I think is of significance, is that um, as the law stands today, right, uh-huh. unchanged, if I, you know, if I have an in, uh, if I have um, uh, purchased a and then donated a conservation easement um, and um, I have a tax benefit. Um, I can currently, in 2019, buying in 2019, use for my 2019 tax purposes that donation. And what you're saying is that it that because ordinarily there's a one year at least where you have to hold it, uh, and that's where these farmers and stuff they've held for 45 years, uh, and 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 right now uh, a partner who's joining up with them doesn't have to wait because they've already waited that time. That yeah. law may change so that, for example, if I invest this year, it may not be the case that I can use that deduction in 19. I may have to wait until 20 tax season. Is that correct? You're reading it exactly right, Bob. Got it. But just to be clear, as of today, which is what, uh, sometime in July, mid-July? July 20th. Yeah, July 20th, uh, 2019, we are still sort of in a situation where we could potentially get benefit today because the law has not changed. Do you have any sense that if that law changes, um, what the timeline, what does it look like? Timeline, no one has a crystal ball. And the legislative processes um, sometimes can be accelerated or um, de-accelerated by certain events. And so it all depends on whether... uh, uh, you know, a, a whole host of components. Uh, you know, th- you're, you're correct in saying, though, that it, as the laws exist today, if one invests today and then votes to put a conservation easement on one's property, uh, one is, the, the treatment of that uh, transaction is based on the laws as they exist today. Uh, you know, my, my, my best guess, though, is that uh, right now, set finances very diligently reviewing uh, this and pouring over millions of pages of documents and reviewing transactions and things of that sort so they can get an idea of what's going on. Um, they're going to come out, uh, you know, uh, back at a recess, um, you know, after Labor Day, because uh, they're going to go on recess in a couple of weeks. And then they're going to come forward with some recommendations that ultimately we have to go into drafting, and then we'll have to be agreed upon in the House, agreed upon in the Senate. Uh, voted on and go to the president for signature. And it wouldn't be in a standalone piece of legislation. It would be kind of a rider to something else that's being passed. Um, so, uh, but there are things that can accelerate that process. Um, and and I'm I'm fully prepared and preparing everyone we're speaking with that in the, you must be prepared for change in the autumn. After Labor Day, anytime, all bets are off as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I think um, the, the significance of that for people out there who are already doing this kind of thing as part of their uh, planning is that you may uh, theoretically in this situation, you may have to prepare not only for this year, but for next year as well. 
if you mm-hmm. want to potentially get that benefit. Uh, one of the things that we did not. Can I add one thing to my last my last statement there, though. Sure. Some of my some of my colleagues in this space are more optimistic that because of the rate at which Congress is getting things done, we won't see anything into 20, uh, 2020. Right. <laughs> that would be great if that's the way it pans out. Yeah. Um, but I just know that um, we're just trying to let people know so that they're not surprised. Yeah. No, um, that's fair. And I think that that's that's an important qualifier. Um, we haven't really, what we haven't addressed, and I think probably some listeners may be curious about is, you know, obviously we're not, you know, this is not a, we're not all Ted Turner's and Maloney. We're not, uh, uh, Trump. We may not have all of this, um, you know, all, all of this land to donate to something like this. But what you do is you put together, uh, these opportunities. How does that structure look like? Because obviously there's people who want to participate in these, want to, you know, uh, be part of the conservation movement, et cetera. But if you're, you obviously you do need to be an accredited investor. Um, but how does something like that, how does it get structured? Well, it gets structured just like, for example, if you were going to invest in a, in, in a piece of real estate could be amplified uh, for a multifamily you know, complex or something like that. Uh, you know, if you invested in that, uh, then the investment capital would go to work, build them, and over some period of time of market absorption, those units would be filled, bought, rented, or whatever it might be, and then returns would be delivered to the investor proportioned to their 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 ownership in that particular investment opportunity. Um, and so that typically happens over some period of time of development and then market absorption. Um, in a similar fashion, if that same particular opportunity were such that saying, yeah, but this particular uh, multifamily investment is, let's just say, uh, on, on you know a river shore and a river view property, and that is one of the reasons that made it very attractive to have you know you know a community with such scenic uh, environment, but at the same time, it puts in peril that that whole the aquaculture of that river, and so if we choose to to uh, conserve that property in the same way proportion to my my benefit my my contribution my ownership in the property I'm a three percent owner of it I'm a three percent recipient of that deduction that is allocated to the um, you know to the partnership so and if I'm a thirty percent owner well that's, so it's, it's a ten million dollar deduction I'm a thirty percent owner but then I get a three million dollar deduction now, right. it doesn't right. matter that I'm invested five hundred thousand dollars to get that Right. Uh, and make that investment into that enterprise. So it's just like any other syndication, basically, in this. That's correct. Yeah. It's important, though, that people know that this particular structure will be put together where there will be the opportunity for the property to be developed and exploited or to be held or to be actually conserved. And they will be part of a voting process that will determine the outcome. Um. So we're looking forward to having you. Um, you are one of the speakers at our next Wealth Formula meetup in Dallas um, in uh, Janu- uh, in September 27th, 28th. In the meantime, uh, we're going to have some updates. I think you're going to do a um, you know more of a you know in depth thing because this is very limited to accredited investors. Um, and our accredited investor group uh, obviously is familiar. You're uh, familiar with you. Um, and you'll be doing a talk on specific opportunities coming up. Um, in the meantime, how can we learn more 
about what your, uh, you know, about conservation easements, if there's a lot more questions, et cetera, and people are getting eager to potentially get involved, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, they can reach out to me via email. Um, and and uh, my email address is jsullivan at terraoptimus.com. I'll spell that out, J-S-U-L-L-I-V-A-N at T-E-R-R-A-O-P-T-I-M-U-S dot com. And I'll be happy to uh, go ahead and, and, and set up some time to speak with them. You know, because these are investment considerations with multiple outcomes that could be explored, uh, you know, we'll just basically provide them with a, a summary of, of something we've got going on now or in the imminent future, and then we can explore it with them. And again, uh, if you have not done so and you're an accredited investor, one way to also get exposure to that is simply by joining the Investor Club at WealthFormula.com. Uh, Jim, it's been uh, great catching up with you and uh, reviewing all this stuff. As always, thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure, Buck. Looking forward to seeing you in Dallas. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. Jim is always a pleasure to talk to, and he's going to be coming to our event, as I mentioned, September 27th to 28th in, uh, in Dallas-Fort Worth. And if you have not gotten your tickets to that, you may be out of luck if you wait much longer. Uh, it is uh, go to wealthformulaevents.com. You'll see the sign-up for that. It's going to be a really great event. We're going to um, have, you know, have some cocktails the night before uh, some of our investors uh, in one of our Dallas properties are going to come out on Friday. And then on Saturday, <clears throat> we're going to do a bunch of lectures with some you know people you're going to know, like Jim's going to be there. He's going to do a lecture, but you're also going to get to ask him a lot of questions. Um, you're going to see guys like Tom Wheelwright, um, you know, Dave Steele, um, you know, just a bunch of really smart people. And that is uh, followed by a bus tour where you can see a bunch of these infinite return type opportunities that we're talking about when we talk about infinite returns, right? That was part of Wealth 2.0. By the way, the event itself is called Wealth 2.0 because that's what I've started calling this. I should I should probably uh, I should probably put a trademark sign on there or something like that. Anyway, um, but it should be a good time. Um, I do want to once again plug Wealth Formula Network again because even if you can't come to that event, this is an ongoing thing. It is a uh, online community for Wealth Formula. Look at that plane above here. You know, I'm pretty much doing this podcast outside. I've got my windows and door open, so that's what happens. But Anyway, um, if you're interested in Wealth Formula Network, go to wealthformularoadmap.com. Uh, that's it for me this week. Uh, this is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.